This week on Monero Talk is sponsored by Cake Wallet. Store, send, receive, and exchange your Monero safely on your iOS and Android too. Cake Wallet is open source, and you always control your own keys and seed. And by Eximer.to. Anonymously exchange your Monero into Bitcoin and seamlessly send Monero to any Bitcoin address. Go to Eximer.to or use it right in your Cake Wallet. Cake Wallet and Eximer.to are trusted and verified by the Monero community. Monero Talk is also made possible from contributions by viewers and listeners like you. This week on Monero Talk, we continue our 36C3 series. In this episode, I first speak with Alexander Poltorek, aka Polto, of the Swiss Crypto Economics Assembly. Polto did a talk and ran a workshop on open source privacy preserving tools for implementing Know Your Customer and anti money laundering regulations that financial intermediaries and individuals can use. Polto is concerned that traditional KYC and AML regulations are being applied too stringently in the cryptocurrency space, unnecessarily invading users' financial privacy and adding inefficiencies to the crypto banking sector. I also speak with Steve Jane, aka M52Gov, of BISC, the decentralized exchange that is popularly used for anonymously trading between Bitcoin and Monero. Steve explains his 36C3 talk, where he presented BISC's new dispute resolution system that no longer relies on trusted third parties. My takeaway is that a true digital cash cryptocurrency like Monero, that is private by default, may actually be more efficiently suited for the traditional banking system than a surveillance coin like Bitcoin, where all transactions are default public. Bitcoin's transparency doesn't just erode users' privacy, but is making governments and financial intermediaries think they need to track all transactions just because they can. This is adding extra overhead to their traditional AML process. Whereas, because Monero is default private, users will transact in private and only provide financial intermediaries and governments a view of their transactions when it is necessary. Surveillance coins don't just invade privacy, they make for a less efficient financial system. Monero Talk starts now. All right, Polto, thanks for coming on, man. I know you gave a talk, well, I guess it was just an intro talk on KYC and AML, uh, creating KYC AML tools for crypto. Um, yeah. And then I think you were, I guess, running something over there where you guys were trying to brainstorm and come up with ideas for? What, what exactly was going on over there with this? Uh, yeah, so to a bit analyze the current state, uh, what do we have as uh, tools or services available today? Uh, why uh, we think they're not um, not sustainable for the ecosystem and in long term, and to come up with some probably better tools. So combine uh, existing tools and analyze what have to be developed. What, um, why are you focusing on this? What made you uh, focus on this problem? Uh, so I work at a financial intermediary in Switzerland, the company uh, doing uh, crypto to fiat, fiat to crypto brokerage. And we regularly face, uh, not, not as, a, as a company 
uh, with our clients. But uh, uh, like when I go to some uh, crypto conferences, there are some AML people trying to sell me something that I think I don't really need. Uh, they say their, uh, they try to sell me their vision of the, their interpretations of the law, and I'm, I don't agree with this interpretation basically. So I, I think that what they are trying to sell today is not needed, is not uh, efficient, is not answering to the problem, and it's destructive for the crypto economy. So I like our community to work on free software tools that uh, enable people to uh, to disclose selectively disclose their proofs if they want to, uh, but not to have these uh, extremely invasive uh, techniques like we are having, like we see today. Okay, so the basic idea is you you think that the the regulations are either too stringent or kind of being misinterpreted and uh, misinterpreted. I, I and being applied yeah. too stringently unnecessarily, is that exactly? Okay. Exactly. I think uh, they the regulation is not yet at least uh, differentiating too much. At least in Switzerland, for example, the financial monitoring try really hard to apply a technically neutral approach, meaning that they treat fiat money, electronic money, digital money, crypto uh, cryptocurrency money as money. Uh, the same way and the same law should apply. So how, how do you see this then working in the in the in the real world? So let's say, uh, I don't know, in, in the US, a lot of people use Coinbase, right? So you want to create a Coinbase account, you have to give them, you know, your driver's license or your passport, some form of ID, uh, other things to prove that you are who you say you are. So you're looking to essentially create tools that would allow you to prove who you are without giving up all that information, essentially? Okay, so this is one big part, the, the KYC, uh, know your customer. The other big part is uh, AML, anti-money laundering. And obviously, you need to first do the, the, the first KYC. You have to know who you are talking with to, to be able to do the AML part. Uh, but here at the workshop, we mainly concentrated on the AML software, on the crypto AML software. Uh, to prove the origin of funds, how do you do that? Um, wh what's required in order to prove your origin of funds? Uh, so once you already pass the, the KYC uh, for some large amount, we usually ask you, like, can you tell me the story? Where does it come from? And can you prove me now this story? So this is what we um, we actually discussed. Uh, oh, today. okay. I got it now. So you weren't focusing on the KYC part, but the AML part. Yeah, um, exactly. Okay. So what what can you describe further what the current problem then is with the AML part? So there there's too much invasiveness there where people where exchanges so, are asking people where funds are going. Could you describe that a little more? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I think there are two main main problems here. One first problem is that uh, the, the banking system, the traditional financial system, is a closed network. So uh, transactions you do on this closed network, the, the other people, they don't see them by default. They only see it if you decide to disclose to them for some particular reason. You want to work with this financial intermediary, with this exchange, 
they ask you for some proof of original funds and you show them your bank extract. So here uh, you had a closed network and you provided a proof selectively to the person you, to the company you want to work with. In cryptocurrencies, in Bitcoin especially, everything or Ethereum, everything is transparent. So um, there are like, um, potential solutions today for this, like using mixers, but this immediately raised res red flags during AML. So uh, this is one type of problem that uh, the network is basically transparent. The other big problem is that uh, proofs are kind of self-generated. So in the traditional finance, when I'm asking you to prove something, I expect you to show me some extract of the bank with the very official logo of the bank on the top, the, their header, uh, and ideally some signature of the person working in the bank, even if I never saw his signature, like how it looks like. But there is some trust built around this kind of proofs provided by organizations, by established organizations with the history. So if a bank would have too much, too many uh, uh, false uh, proofs, it would become known and they would be sanctioned, someone would go to prison, etc., etc. In the cryptocurrency world, these proofs are generated by, uh, it's like, be your own bank, so be your own compliance. So when we ask, for example, a client to prove us something on the cryptocurrency side, he is producing the proof. And for people from the traditional finance, this is very strange. They would prefer some company with a, uh, with a reputation. They would prefer to ask them, can you tell me if it's clean? And they tell, yeah, that's super clean, or this is like 70%, or this went through a mixer, it's super dark, or something like that. So these are, for me, the, the main problems that uh, I see today. And uh, the response for now, the technological response that I see for now is a completely invasive chain analysis uh, type of approach. And I would like to see more some tools that empower people to uh, disclose whatever they are willing to disclose, uh, but still preserving the the um, privacy to the rest of the world. Mm. So maybe some easy examples of, um, like really easy examples of uh, AML that we can uh, say is like someone uh, saying that, okay, I would like to say to sell 100 Bitcoins and the origin of funds is that I am a miner. So we would like, we would ask him to provide a cryptographic signature of a specific message that we ask him to sign with the private key of the uh, address where he had the rewards. And then our compliance can use tools like blockchain explorers, for example, to see where these rewards really came, came from. If it's really a reward from a pool or from mining activity, or if it doesn't match. And then we would continue to ask questions until we reach some plausible understanding of his origin of funds. Hmm. And by the way, by the way, uh, in cryptocurrencies, as you see, uh, you present cryptographic proofs. So it's kind of white or black. 
And in the traditional finance, you are presenting PDFs or some scans with manual signatures of people that I never saw. So I can even not verify the signature. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So with Monero, uh, with it being the blockchain being obscured and not being transparent, so it's it kind of has those tools built into it then right because it's you're not you're not worried about there being uh the over regulation or the uh over scanning of the blockchain to see where certain because they can't and then it's more on the onus is more on the user to then just opt in and and show certain things right using the view key is that yes one way of looking at it that's, uh, I think, a good way to look at it. But uh, there, like, there is not such a thing as 100% secure in in uh, cryptography. So uh, things are like, I think it's a game where, uh, like, we are trying to, like, the uh, companies like Chain Analysis are trying to catch up with uh, new obfuscation techniques. So um, the community is also moving on and uh, with this technique being uh, developed, uh, there is incentive to develop new technologies uh, for privacy. So I think it's a moving, uh, very fastly moving um, topic. And um, I think full anonymity does not exist. Uh, now um, it's clear uh, Monero is much better for this. Um, and again, uh, Monero still allows you to selectively prove when you want to do business with someone, uh, you can selectively disclose uh, some proofs. So do you see that being the ideal way these things should work? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So uh, to give you an easy example where uh, our compliance should probably accept a transaction and someone using uh, externalized uh, API-based uh, blockchain analysis would just refuse immediately the transaction. Uh, the client comes to us and we see that, uh, let's say, three hops behind it was, uh, I mean, on Bitcoin, that it was uh, a Bitcoin mixer, yeah? Or he used some weird coin join or whatever. So uh, an API would immediately raise a red flag saying that this is super weird and like looks strange. Uh, and because the, the the financial intermediary is externalizing the process, uh, they don't even try to communicate with the customer and ask him questions. We would just add an additional question. We would say, okay, we see that you went for a mixer. Can you prove us the input and outputs? Usually you have a signature from the mixer, so you can perfectly prove. And we can continue our work of digging down to the origin of funds by asking questions to our client and the client present enough as with proofs. So it's uh, uh, it can be done uh, with Monero and uh, like this situation that I de described with the mixer, it basically uh, similar to what happened in Monero. Mm -hmm. Like probably many financial intermediaries who do not understand what's a view key they would just simply say, oh, it's Monero, it's completely anonymous, we can do nothing about it. Right. So what I'm hearing for you is, you know, uh, financial institutions might potentially 
be more interested in using Monero once they actually understand it because it will allow them to uh, do things in accordance with the regulations without doing extra work. So it's like in Bitcoin, because they have the ability to analyze the chain, they feel like they need to and they put in that extra effort and they hire the chain analysis companies. But where in Monero, because that option doesn't even exist, uh, it should be understood that they don't have to do it. And essentially all they have to do is ask customers for their view keys. Excellent point. I never thought about this in this way, but yeah, I think it's a, uh, it's a good argument. And actually, if it's well explained, probably the financial institutions should jump into uh, privacy coins for exactly precisely for this reason. Mm. Because now, uh, like everyone is uh, very enthusiastic. Now there is a new law in Germany allowing banks to to do custody and uh, trading of cryptocurrencies for their customers. So everyone is kind of trying to do something, but then they see the costs of the AML, of these um, uh, appliances and stuff. It's uh, it's a huge overhead that they never had in in the tradition, even in the traditional finance world. So I think it's a good argument to to uh, go for privacy coins. I think also it's a good argument for governments because, for example, on the on every paper bill we have a serial number on the fiat, uh, but somehow the governments decided that it would not be something good for our societies and for economies to track it down to like each individual transaction. Mm-hmm. And you can see that okay, some governments like India try to demonetize. Uh, some governments like Switzerland maintain a high high level of uh, paper uh, liquidity. I mean, like uh, how do you call it? Like proper fiat, not not electronic money. I mean, um, to allow some part of the economy to function without uh, like complete monitoring because it's extremely destructive. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean. Uh... In, in cash, you know, uh, you go you go to the bank, you take out your cash. They know how much you took out, but they don't know what you did after that. And you're saying is theoretically they could know more if they wanted to put in an extreme amount of effort to figure it out, but just, they don't. Just imagine how easy it is today to put a visual sensor reading a code bar or a serial number on a bill into mm-hmm. any caching machine and to force this by law. Right. Somehow they are intelligent enough not to do this. Right. So uh, I think that if they would properly understand that uh, it's not only about privacy enforced by cryptography, it's about privacy enforced by cryptography, and the same cryptography can perfectly help you to de-anonymize you selectively and proving, but cryptographically proving. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, not like a PDF, as I told before, that could be perfectly modified, photoshopped or whatever, uh, but a cryptographic proof. Hmm. So what do you so do you think there's just currently then this there's a disconnect? There's just a lack of education and understanding because it's kind of like we're, we see the opposite, right? We see exchanges uh, not wanting to or at least that's the FUD you hear that they don't want to deal with privacy coins uh, even on like something like Coinbase, we have never seen them add Monero. But from what we're the, 
discussion we're having today, they should almost be more enthusiastic to move towards these things because it could potentially mean less work and overhead for them in dealing with these currencies. So do yeah, you think it's well, just I, a it's just a temporary disconnect that will change with time? I don't, I don't know if it's temporary in the sense that uh, different governments, and I, I'm not saying countries, governments of these countries, so it may change over time, but the different governments, they are applying different politics, policies uh, for or against crypto and like as a whole, and in particular to the privacy coins. Uh, then I think we need uh, maybe some decennies of uh, understanding the uh, the properties of what these um, cryptographic proofs are proving, and uh, it should go down to the to the compliance. So it's not cryptographers who should understand; it's the compliance who should trust some code that they are executing and should have some. Uh, quite good understanding of what it is actually proving. So will you be working on things like Monero as well, or you're just more focused on Bitcoin and building the AML tools for cryptographically uh, proving ownerships of, of Bitcoin? So um, my personal experience in Monero for now is quite low. I like I did some uh, tests, but uh, I mean, I'm not using it every day, unfortunately. Um, at the company where I'm working, uh, we uh, we just added uh, Monero to our BTM machines um, some months, uh, almost a year ago, uh, but it's still not on our platform. By the way, our ATM, crypto ATM machines are fully anonymous, so no KYC uh, in there, and it's perfectly legal in Switzerland. It's limited to 5,000 Swiss francs per, per transaction. Uh, so um, on the on the web platform and the API, we are still uh, working on adding Monero. So for now, we don't have many uh, cases with uh, origin of funds proved uh, on Monero, uh, but even to buy some Bitcoin, some, sometimes we had customers paying, uh, not not paying, but showing their original funds that went through uh, Monero. So we had to, to learn and to develop this uh, this knowledge internally. But it's not yet as uh, rock solid and automated, and uh, like we still lack a lot of tools for doing this. And on, on the tooling, like there, there are tools that we will use as the compliance service on our side in the company, but there are also tools that the client uh, have to use in order to produce the proof. And here there are also a lot of development and a lot of education to, to do. Uh, just to give you an example, not all Bitcoin wallets uh, can sign a message, an arbitrary message. They can all sign a transaction, but not not a message. Not all Bitcoin wallet can extract extended public keys and properly uh, tell to the user what this means. So um, in the Monero ecosystem, I don't know uh, like how easy it is to extract your view key on every wallet, for example. Uh, 
and to properly uh, tell the user what uh, like kind of warn the user what uh, this uh, what others could do with this. Uh, so these are the two main parts uh, of software that mm. we need and a lot of education. And so my idea with this uh, small talk at, uh, here at CCC, uh, because AML is not the, the kind of funny uh, stuff to talk, especially here at the community, I can hear a lot and I don't want to talk about this in standard crypto conferences. Uh, but especially here at CCC, uh, it's a bit strange to talk about AML. So uh, the the reason why I did it is because I really see emergency in uh, uh, creating some free software tool that empowered the users and instead of like doing some uh, weird uh, uh, surveillance, invasive surveillance, basically just uh, disallowing them to, to do financial uh, transactions to, to access to the financials uh, system. So uh, I'm really thinking about uh, creating an association in Switzerland, a legal uh, non-profit entity to um, kind of um, aggregate and promote this kind of software uh, so that the financial intermediaries see uh, some legal body presenting some uh, alternative option. Because for now, it's really uh, uh, mostly chain analysis tools that do not ask any single question from the from the client trying to transact. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, it, it seems it seems like uh, something that's uh, you're like, you're headed in the right direction. I mean, um, to to just uh, say you know let's not worry about KYC AML. This stuff's supposed to be uh, for cypherpunks and crypto anarchists. Is great. It's great in theory, and that's the direction we're all ultimately headed in. But <laughs> in the interim, we have to before we get to that stage, we have to work with the with the current system, and this yeah. allows us to to bridge with the current system in in a way that's uh, at least more aligned with with those ideals. So if you know if we're going to have to interact with the current system, at least we could do it in a way where where you're not losing as much information. Because, uh, I mean, the mere fact is if you want everybody to start using Bitcoin or Monero, they're going to have to get into it from the from the fiat world somehow. Yeah. Um, uh, even, you know, I have some customers who are like early uh, crypto investors and like we only have quite conservative customers. So it's mainly Bitcoin, sometimes Ethereum, Monero, but it stays in there. Uh, but they're starting to ask questions like... Uh, how when I will give these coins to my children, how they will be able to use it if it really becomes like valued 10 times more than now. So he invested back in, let's say in 2014. Uh, now he accumulated some amount of Bitcoins and uh, let's hope it will be some millions or dozens of millions when uh, his children inherit of this. So already just the inheritance problem is a separate problem. It has to be also legally handled in order to be considered as an inheritance and not just stolen or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, they start to ask how my children will be able to buy a house with this money. Uh, because in the real world, uh, like the 
company selling the house, they will do KYC and AML. Mm -hmm. So they start to explain their last years of trading and investment and to document this precisely so that it would be uh, available for their children than, than they needed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you just really, have to buy, uh, buy a house from a, an, a crypto anarchist, I guess, is the, is the only way to uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> We are not here yet. <laughs> I mean, the, you, you, you would be uh, very restricted in your choices yep. of house. So, yeah. All right. Well, well thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks for explaining it all. Where could people learn more about you, the project you're working on? Um, the, we didn't talk about the Swiss Crypto Economic Assembly, right? That's also, a, is that yeah, yeah. part of this or that's... Yes, yeah, so I did this uh, workshop as part of this uh, assembly. So in few in a few words, this assembly is a kind of um, uh, it's uh, it's a lot of uh, different groups from uh, uh, French speaking Switzerland mainly, but uh, also a bit all over the Europe, our friends, but who have like legal entities usually in Switzerland. So. Um, so uh, it's uh, a lot of different projects in the crypto space, mainly on Bitcoin and Ethereum in the in those two ecosystems. Uh, some are like um, so uh, we had some independent group of developers uh, like uh, Dan and uh, so how was it Hashed who uh, presented the Bitcoin uh, Monero Atomic Swap. We have Dapnode, uh, decentralized infrastructure for like self-hosted decentralized infrastructure for uh, peer-to-peer and crypto networks. Uh, we had uh, Neem, uh, Mixnet. Um, uh, we had Alephium, Sharded Blockchain, many other groups. In fact, I cannot remember them all now. Uh, but yeah, so. Um, Swiss Crypto Economics is this uh, group of different people coming from Switzerland and involved in the in this uh, sector. Okay, uh, we'll leave it at that. I'll I'll hit hit you up later. We'll try to get some links maybe that we could add to the show notes. Sure, uh, we'll sure, add sure. your previous talk to the show notes so people can learn more yeah. about about these things. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Thank Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Steve Jane, thanks for coming on. Steve Jane of the of the BIS project. Can you hear me, Steve? Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. So you just did a talk uh, at the conference on the BIS project. Hold on, what am I getting here? Oh, I think we're good. Um, so what, what what was the uh, the essence of of your talk there? So the topic of the talk was uh, this new dispute resolution mechanism. Um, essentially, about two months ago, in this version 1.2, we introduced a dispute resolution mechanism that was centered around a two of two multi-sig arrangement, as opposed to the two of three that it was before. And that basically results in a more decentralized uh, mechanism where you need less trust. Uh, before, you had to trust a, an anonymous third party. Now, the mechanism is a bit different, so you don't have to do that. Yeah, so how did BISC end up evolving into that, uh, evolving into using that method? Yeah, so it was, uh, I guess, a long-term goal, um, but it required a bit of work uh, to make that happen. In particular, the BISC DAO had to be launched because the 
the DAO is a, is a critical part of the third step in, in the process. Um, so the first step was creator chat. This was something that we didn't have before uh, to allow people to directly chat with each other in case of any small issues. Um, and the second and third step, mediation and uh, what do we call it, refund agent, are, uh, are new in that. That's centered around the, the idea of a two of three, a two of two, multi-sig. Um, so, like you mentioned before, it was two of three, and you'd have third key held by a trusted arbitrator. Now, with two of two, that, that third key is no longer there, and it's just the two trading parties who have keys to free those funds. And so, the, the second step, mediation, uh, takes place when chat does not work. And what a mediator will do is look at the situation and make a and make a, a suggestion as to how they think the payout should be made. Um, looking at the, the rules of trading on BISC and looking at the exact particular details of the trade, um, they'll make a suggestion and the traders are then free to accept or reject that suggestion. Um, if both traders agree with the suggestion, then the dispute is closed, payout is made, and trade is completed. If not, a refund agent is then involved. They take another look at the, the details. And if they think that the trader deserves the funds, if they're uh, basically if they're honest and innocent, then the refund agent will pay the trader out of their own pocket with Bitcoin to make them whole and then request compensation for that payment from the BISCAL. Um, and so that's there's a bit of a process that goes on behind the scenes. Um, but that's essentially what happens. The funds from the two of two are sent beforehand to the DAO, and then the DAO pays every fund agent back. What, why? But I guess my question is, why did BIS move to this approach? What was uh, what was the issue oh, with oh. the previous approach? Sure. Uh, so the issue was, I guess you could say it was twofold. One was that you were trusting as a user, you were trusting that this anonymous person would would handle your case fairly and, and justly. So you kind of, you, you miss out on having absolute control over your funds if a dispute arose. Um, and second, for the BIS network, there was a bit of a gray area in terms of liability, legally. Um, because if for, for a split second, you or for, for, for some indeterminate amount of time, the network had some amount of influence over the funds held for trading. And so this new mechanism in this new mechanism that never happens. No one in the business network ever has control over the funds that are being deposited for trades. Um, and for the first problem, traders never have to trust that some anonymous person has control over their funds either. So it's better, I think, on both sides. Okay, that makes sense. So if there is a dispute, uh, the goal is or that the, the individuals involved will resolve it themselves. And then if they can't, they turn to the DAO, and the DAO essentially decides whether or not a refund is given. Is that? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the the refund. So we wanted to avoid users from having to use the DAO themselves. Um, there was initially an under uh, discussion the ability for a user to just ask the DAO for a refund directly, um, but we realized that most users aren't going to want to take on the complexity of understanding what that's all about and how it works. So that's where the refund agent came into play. The refund agent is basically a liaison. Like they'll they'll do the refund and just make the user whole and 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 get them going on their way, um, and then handle the DAO complexity 
on their own to get to get reimbursed for that expense. Okay, so the the DAO reimburses the the refund. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Right. Yeah. It's, okay. it's, a, it's, a, it's a it's a it's a it's a an extra step, but I think a necessary one for ease of use in US. Okay. So is the is the refunder taking a risk there or they are. And they are taking a risk that number one, that they're not paid back by the DAO for, for whatever reason the DAO thinks that this refund was not warranted. Um, and they're also taking on a slight liquidity risk because the DAO pays out in BSQ, but the refunder paid out in BTC. So when the person, the refunder is paid back in BSQ, they're going to have to sell that BSQ back for BTC. And in the interim, there could be some, you know, liquidity, uh, changes in price such that the person doesn't get back 100% of what they paid. So they are compensated for their efforts to do this. Okay, so the the incentive of the refunder is that they're they're paid they're compensated for the for taking this risk in the work that yes. they're doing. Yes, which is why the network is thus incentivized to minimize the number of these cases to almost nothing. We don't want more than I think I said in the presentation about 1% of all trades to ever have to do this um, because this is an expensive uh, element of dispute resolution for the network. So have we seen? So are these disputes taking place? Have we seen them taking place at that rate of one percent? So this was this whole mechanism was just was launched about two months ago. So it's very new, and we expected that we were not going to hit that one percent off the bat. Um, so that, the percentage so far has been a bit higher. Part of it was the upgrade itself caused a couple of problems. We we asked that users not upgrade if they had open disputes and open trades, but still some users did that, so there are some issues there. Um, then there were some bugs that we that are now somewhat resolved. Some are resolved, some remain. Um, so to answer your question, no, we're not at one percent, but we weren't too far beyond that, and we hope to get that down over time. And so the the new dispute resolution method is is working. Like it, you've you've had disputes that you've successfully carried through. Yeah, we've had mediation cases and we've had a handful of arbitration cases and and they've worked as uh, as intended. Now, when you say that the DAO is essentially then making the decision whether or not to reimburse the refunder, um, how is that taking place? What? When we say the DAO, who who is in the DAO and how is that decision being made? Yeah, so the DAO is kind of, uh, it's a, probably not the greatest term um, in that it's not, so it, it stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. It's not automated, really. It's, it's a bunch of people um, making proposals and deciding on proposals themselves, like humans actually evaluating a GitHub proposal, evaluating a compensation request, evaluating a reimbursement request. Um, and then making a decision in their brain as to whether or not this is a proposal that, that should be approved or not. Basically, it's, um, it's a part of the software. Um, anybody can participate in it. It's not limited to anybody in particular, um, whereby governance and funding for the BISC network are decided um, through the proposal sort of uh, dynamic that I just described. And so when it comes to reimbursement, um, yeah, the reimbursement agent will make a proposal, just like anybody can make a proposal to change any aspect of this. And when the voting time comes, which is every month, um, the DAO runs on a monthly, a monthly cycle schedule. At the end of the cycle, voting takes place. Contributors and users can go through all the proposals that were made during the cycle and 
decide whether or not it should be approved or rejected. So then what's their incentive to participate in the in the DAO and to to make these decisions? I think it's uh, a matter of how invested you are in the project. If you are a regular contributor, you're going to want to make sure that the that the DAO doesn't over issue BSQ uh, so that you know you aren't you're holding your stake is not inflated away. If you're a trader, you want to make sure that there are no proposals that take that are that are made that jeopardize the use of the software for, for trading. Um, trading fees is a, is, is a kind of, is an obvious one, kind of a common one that we see as the Bitcoin price fluctuates. Um, fees also need to fluctuate so that they stay fair. And so uh, we've had a couple of times now over the past eight months that the DAO has been live that we've had to change fees. And, uh, you know, traders had feelings about that and they, they made them aware and they voted accordingly. What kind of stats are we seeing on BISC? So in terms of how many people are actively in the DAO and participating it, and then just the exchange itself, what type of volume and participation are we seeing in the, in the exchange? So we are seeing about 25, ballparking here, about 25 proposals made every, every cycle, every month. Um, most of these are compensation requests from developers and other people who've contributed who are requesting compensation for their work. The balance of proposals are usually like proposals to change fees. Um, we had a proposal to integrate uh, Monero as a base wallet. That was another one. Um, and we've, we've had other proposals as well. Uh, we're seeing about, this fluctuates, but we're seeing about 400, I would say, Two to four hundred votes per cycle. Um, this is this is votes um, per proposal. So when you cast a vote in the DAO, you're casting one ballot with all the votes for that for that cycle. So in terms of number of votes, we're seeing between two to four hundred votes. Um, and yeah, we're in our I think we're in our ninth cycle right now for the DAO. In terms of trading, um, trading has fluctuated a lot. We uh, Saw earlier this year, we saw between two to three thousand Bitcoin being traded in a month. Now we're probably around two to four hundred Bitcoin. Uh, dropped dropped quite a bit. We fluctuate quite a bit. We, what do you think uh, that? Okay. What What do you think the drop was yeah. from, or the or why there was so much trading happening earlier? It's hard to tell. I mean, the the volume is the volume lost was mostly Monero volume. Um, I can tell you that. I can't tell you why. I don't. I don't know exactly what the reasons behind that were, but um, that's basically what it was. Our fiat volume is relatively constant in the 45 to 50 Bitcoin volume per uh, 50 Bitcoin per month. Um, but Monero is what really caused that that spike in both ways. We've seen it go up and down suddenly in the past for quite quickly. Do you suspect the Monero uh, Monero users will come back to Bisc and start using it for trading or? I hope so. I think um, I mentioned there was a Monero proposal a while back uh, for integrating Monero Wallet. I think there was a bit of a misunderstanding in my perspective uh, for for why why that proposal was was rejected. Um, there are two reasons. So first of all, at the moment, this uh, contribution resources in terms of developers are not very high. There isn't too much. Uh, resources just to keep up the network as it is. 
Um, the Monero proposal required, I believe, uh, an, uh, an additional dependency that would have had to be audited very carefully, as well as uh, a number of other uh, significant changes in the way the software worked um, that also would have had to be audited. And the resources were very not really available for that. Um, and secondly, and this is really more systemic. I was talking to Diego about this just a few minutes ago. Um, Monero's wallet integration proposal was not the only significant proposal that's been declined. Um, this is more of a systemic, like organizational governance issue with this overall right now. There just isn't a way to um, to handle big changes to the software right now. Um, we had a proposal for an HTTP API. We also had a proposal for an Android app. Um, and both of those, well, the Android one was accepted, but only after the guy offered to front the whole cost for the whole project. But the HTTP API was, was also rejected because of resources and also because there just wasn't a well-defined way to handle a big change that would have to take place over time. And um, that's something we're kind of working on right now. Like, okay, we have the day-to-day -day compensation and like little changes here and there for like fees. The DAO can handle those fine. But when it comes to bigger issues that need to take place over time that uh, that are not so clear how they're implemented, we need a better way to handle them. And um, we're, we're working on that. And um, hopefully at some point in the future, perhaps you know, near to mid-future, we'll have a better idea of how things like the Monero integration and API and other apps and stuff can be uh, better handled. What do you see as being the future for BISC? Um, do you think it will become more popular? Do you think it will s things like decentralized exchanges will uh, start to eat into uh, the exchange market overall and start to take over uh, the exchange marketplace? What do you kind of see as being the future of exchanging crypto? I think I think the future points to something like this being bigger, but I think that it's not going to happen on its own. I think that the, I mean, you can see with the way Monero is being delisted, you know, uh, privacy in general, with the way uh, KYC and AML practices are being required more and more, more stringent ways. Um, people are looking for alternatives, and I think BISC offers that, but it's not easy to use BISC. I acknowledge that. I think a lot of people do in the project and outside the project, of course. Um, and it's also not easy to find out about this either. I think our growth efforts so far um, across the project have not been as smart and as effective as they, as, they, as they need to be to attract a broader user base. And then within the software, within the whole funnel from finding out about the software to learning about it to using it, that whole flow needs to be made better as well. So... To answer your question, I think this has a has potential, has a lot of potential given the market conditions and what users want. But I think the project needs to and is working on ways to um, better spread the word and better um, handle uh, new users to become productive quickly. Do you see BISC potentially being integrated into other things uh, to make it more user-friendly? Um, 
I don't know if it's if it's possible or feasible, but for example, being integrated into like wallets, um, is, is that something that's uh, that's potential? Potentially, oh, it's, it's totally potential. potential. I think we need uh, we need uh, an API first to make that work. There's a lot of really cool things that I think can be enabled. Uh, a lot of cool integrations, a lot of um, just liquidity in general. You can have an API to to handle uh, making offers, taking offers, and that whole work, that whole uh, that whole flow. Uh, there's a lot that's possible. So I I I look I, I think I think it's totally possible, and I look forward to the time that we have an API for that kind of stuff to happen. All right. How did you get involved in Bisk? Um, I saw a tweet. I saw a tweet uh, asking for help with documentation. And um, so I responded and did the documentation that was uh, needed at the time and then just kind of kept on doing more and more over time. Are you also a Monero enthusiast or what's what's your crypto of choice? Uh, so I, Bitcoin is kind of what I've stuck to, but I've, I've been learning a lot about Monero uh, lately and I, I respect it a lot. I'm a, you know, I've always been a big privacy guy, so um, the the concept of ring signatures and just what everything I've seen from uh, the Monero community is very, very attractive to me. So uh, I have a big respect for it. All right. All right. Thanks. Appreciate, appreciate you uh, coming on, taking, taking your time to do the interview. And I think you're doing, are you doing another talk tomorrow? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm having another talk tomorrow on, I think it's for the about freedom assembly and it's going to be about the best uh, in general, what it is and uh, how it works. All right. Thank you very much. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have an Alexa device, you can tell it to listen to the latest episode of the Monero Talk podcast. Go to monerotalk.live slash subscribe for a full list of places where you can watch and listen. If you want to interact with us, guests, or other podcast listeners, you can follow us on Twitter. And please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find the show, and we are always happy to read them. So thanks so much, and we look forward to being back next week.